Tonight, we are on Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And we'll finish chapter 3 up for sure tonight. We'll see if we get into chapter 4 or not. Um, The church of Philadelphia and Laodicea will kind of give you a quick recap. In chapter 1, what we were seeing is basically John was having a vision of basically God himself, seeing the characteristics, the qualities. And then in chapter 2 and 3, we're seeing these churches, and we're seeing that there's a characteristic of God given to each church, one of these characteristics of God. And it's, I think, a very likely possibility that each of these churches are not only literal churches, but indeed representations of time periods throughout history. And so we're picking up here at verse 7, where we are now on the sixth of the seventh churches. Um, And this is going to be from about 1700 to 1900 A.D. Again, in in a sense, these are made-up eras. I, I can't, there's nothing in Scripture that says that these are those time periods. But we see a general attitude of society or whatever during this period that seems to fit and it is progressive as we've been going through. I'll give you a recap here later. But it says this in Revelation 3, 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Well, first, let me give you a little bit of information about Philadelphia. Philadelphia, it simply means brotherly love. And it was about 28 miles southeast. We're now kind of, remember I said that the churches kind of go in a circle. We're, we're on our way down that circle. And it was southeast of Sardis. It was known to have many earthquakes throughout its history at this time. Uh, today, it is in Turkey called and I have no idea if this is pronounced right, but Al, Alice here or Alice here or something like that. It's A-L-A-S-E-H-I-R. And so that is where it is today. But anyway, this city itself was founded by Attalus of Pergamum. And we've already talked about Pergamum, but it was named for his brother. And that is why we get Philadelphia, brotherly love. So just a little history on that. Um, this is one of the two churches that do not receive any words of correction. We see the persecuted church did not receive any words of correction, and this church is not receiving any correction. Now, it seems to be covering a period of uh, kind of preparation for the missionary expansion and we see a lot of the missionaries even today in the church when we talk about you know Spurgeon said or you know uh, all these great missionaries when you go they fit into this time period typically this was a time period of revival that I don't think we've seen since the apostolic age Thousands of people were coming to Christ in meetings and so on 
during this time period. And we've gone away from that now in the churches. We always are living in the past, hearing, oh, you know, in the great tent revival days and all of these kind of things. It doesn't happen like that much anymore. And so this is the time period we're in. Uh, you might have heard of a missionary named William Carey. Uh, he was uh, basically about a thousand years ago. And he went to India to spread the gospel there even translated the Bible into the Indian language so that they could understand it. And, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people believed because one man went to spread the gospel. In the 1800s, we saw a great missionary expansion as well. There was one businessman in New York City. And just because he was a businessman and he started up these prayer meetings, we saw... One week, over 10,000 people basically claimed to believe in Jesus Christ from meetings that were organized by this guy in New York City. Things like that were happening around the world where it was almost like Pentecost, Shavuot, where thousands of people were believing and it was from being, you know, preaching the word. You know, I, I can't remember who's the guy. He was really boring. Anybody remember? Yeah. Not me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. <laughs> A while back. I think Spurgeon basically said that, I mean, he was so dry, and yet thousands and thousands and thousands of people believed because this man, even though he spoke in a monotone voice, would come and preach truth and the word of God. He, you'd know his name if I said it, but I just can't place which one he was. It wasn't of what we see today, where people have to be dynamic, awesome preachers. And No, all they have to do is preach the word. And preaching the word, the, the spirit brought so many people to faith. And... Now we have made the gospel, you've probably heard Burger King, have it your way. What would you like to see in church? We take, we take all of these surveys to see what are you looking for? What do you, what do you hope to get out of this? And, you know, we're, we're, we're doing demographic studies to see, you know, where the most people are so that we can plant a church here and get the most people to come. And, and I'm not saying that that can't be wise in some areas but sometimes we rely on the world's methods more than the power of the word of God. And what we saw happening here in this time was the word of God working, void of all of the world's methods. So what we're seeing is a time period here of just a missionary movement where you might even say there was a love for brothers, a love for people that we love people enough to go warn them. And you listen to the preaching of the past, and we're going to, I think, get into some of this tonight. It was filled with the law of God. And we hear in Scripture, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Today, the law has been kind of wiped out of the churches, and we just want to have people feel good. We don't want to convict. We don't want them to feel bad. We, we're worried that they may not come back and then we're going to lose a tither. We're, we're worried about all of these things. That wasn't this, that's not Spurgeon. 
That wasn't Jonathan Edwards. That wasn't what was going on. These people were preaching repentance. And we've lost that somehow. I think it was John Corson who said, if we don't evangelize, we will fossilize. And then you will cannibalize. And in essence, that's what we do. Our church growth of today is not bringing people to Christ. It's getting people who leave another church because they have, you know, outgrown it or are tired of it or don't like somebody or whatever the case might be. You either evangelize or you're going to fossilize and then you cannibalize. And evangelize isn't what we're doing today. Evangelizing should be going out to the street corners, going to them. Today, and I've said this for years and years and years, the church is never, it was never meant for the world. The church was meant for you. You are to go out to the world and then you tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then they come to the church where they are to be fed. But instead, what we've done, because we've made the church for the world, we've dumbed it down. We've watered it down to the point to where we have to be careful because the people who come to church aren't ready for truth. They're not ready to be challenged. And so we've used church as an evangelistic arm when it isn't. That's for you. And then you are the evangelistic arm. Not the church, not the, not the organization. Amen. And that's what we have to get back to. And I think that this is a call, in essence, to get to that, to look back at this period. Again, not a single word of condemnation is going to be received here. And so I find it interesting, the words that are given here. When it says, these things say he is holy, true. We understand God is holy, perfect. He is true. There is no lie in him. But he who has the keys of David. You go, what are the keys of David? Well, that's almost a direct quote from Isaiah 22, 22 here. It says, the keys of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. Speaking of the Messiah, Yeshua Jesus. So he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. And that is what we're seeing here in Revelation. So we don't have to really wonder what this is, but he's saying the Messiah is going to open the hearts and open the doors of an opportunity for people to be saved. And so there's an evangelistic hint, you might say, right here in this opening to the Church of Philadelphia. And it's kind of interesting as well that these words of Isaiah 22 were promised to Eliakim. That was a, one of the servants under King Hezekiah there of Judah. And these keys were a sign of governmental authority as well. We know that the Messiah was going to come and have authority. Now we're not talking about speed limits. We're talking about the authority of truth and justice. And he is the one who is holy. He is true and he has that authority and i think that we've lost that truth and that holiness even in the church today when we have pigs being walked down the aisle so that the pastor can kiss it because of some challenge where's the reverence where's the holiness this is the description of christ and it is very similar to the attribute found in way back in chapter 1 verse 18 
where it said, if I can get to verse 18, uh, I'm just going to read, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. So I think part of these keys, the keys of David, are also going to be the authority to send you to hell or the authority to send you to heaven. Those keys are important. Um, so anyway, I think though it may allude to the opening doors of witness opportunities, the doors of evangelism being swung wide open and that's exactly what is seen during this time period of history. So as I said before, the first four churches that we've talked about are successive, and then the last three are continuing, meaning this. The fifth church was marked by the Reformation era. That Reformation opened the door. It was continuing to allow people then to go out and spread the gospel, a missionary focus, which will continue then even into the seventh if people will take that opportunity rather than fall asleep and become lukewarm, which is where I think we have found ourselves. So we'll look at that progression here again as we go, but let's move on to verse 8 first. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. Again, perhaps that opportunity to witness. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Why did they not deny the name of Christ? Because they kept his word. Don't lose that. These things go hand in hand. If you keep God's word, you will not deny his name. If you exercise your faith, it's going to be strong. So keep the word. They kept the word because they believed the word and they were in the word, and therefore you keep it. Look at Colossians 4.3 and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Here we see the door, and we're going to see this often, is even in other places in Scripture used as an opportunity of witness, evangelism. And so I'm not just spiritualizing this myself. These are things that Scripture would tend to say and define. Now, what is the mystery of Christ, by the way? You read the book of Ephesians, you see the mystery of Christ was that he opened up the door to the Gentiles to come in to the Jewish covenant. Go read Ephesians. That's the mystery. He explains that to you. 1 Corinthians 16.9 says, Because a great door for effective work has opened to me. So again, we're seeing that same type of uh, explanation for what this door would mean. 2 Corinthians 12.9 where he says that you have little strength. It says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, says Christ. So here's a church, and it says, You have little strength. Who was it? Who were these people that were missionaries going out and, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people hearing the gospel? They were nobodies. They had little strength, they had little influence. 
They weren't, you know, uh, rich, and yet they touched thousands upon thousands. And so, <clears throat> don't forget that. There is a door that is wide open in this country right now. We have an opportunity to go speak about Jesus and not be arrested so far. It is wide open. And you say, yeah, but I'm not. I don't know. I, I don't have blah, blah, blah. Whatever your excuse is, don't miss this. You have little strength. You don't need it. Keep the word and don't deny him. Keep it. Proclaim him and just see the blessings that will come because of that. Verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. This is not the first time we've seen the synagogue of Satan. We saw that in the church of Smyrna back in chapter 2, verse 9 as well. Those who said they were Jews and are not. Again, this goes back to what I've harped on many times. In a sense, guys, you are Jews. I don't care if you're a Gentile or not. In a sense, you are because you have been grafted in to a Jewish covenant. You may not be physical DNA Jew, but in God's eyes, he said, who's a Jew? Those who have the faith of Abraham. In those DNA Jews, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, he said, you're not Jews. So being a Jew really doesn't have anything to do with your physical roots. It has everything to do with your spiritual faith. He says, I'm going to make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. They don't have faith, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. This is why the mystery of the gospel was proclaimed. Romans 8, and I don't have that up here, but Romans, maybe it's 10, now I'm forgetting. Romans talks about this. He basically says that he has handed all men over to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all of them. But he says that he turned Israel over to disobedience. And the whole goal was so that the Gentiles would be welcomed in. And then he says, now that that grace has been offered to you, you're the one that is supposed to be making those Jews jealous. And they should be looking at you and saying, I want what they have. And rather than us saying, oh, those are Jews. God has you know, gotten rid of them. He's rejected them. Let's go have our Gentile churches. We're supposed to be searching them out and making them jealous. That's our goal. To come and have them not worship you, but worship God at your feet. That they will be able to say, you, you guys were right. Yeshua is the Messiah. And when it says that they, to acknowledge that I have loved you, remember this is the whole thing of Galatians, the whole thing of so many of these books that we've looked at before, is that the Jews think there's no way a Gentile can be a believer. You guys are dirty pagan you know why would i have anything to do with you when you've told me that the torah the law of god is gone that you have pagan festivals pagan names upon your lips you even worship it 
Some do. Why would I do that? Why would I? But they're going to someday go, wow, God did open the door to you. I get it now. And that's what's happened. Well, what happened in the missionary expansion was that very thing is many people, even many Jews. And if you read some of the commentaries from these period, it's amazing how many times they'll quote Jewish things. We rarely hear that today. They'll use Jewish phrases. Phrases. I'm going to give you some of those tonight. But you're going to see they had a heart for the Jews in these missionaries. Like, Again, there was an anti-Semitic attitude all throughout history. But those who truly knew God and loved him, during this period, many of them realized that God had not rejected the Jew. It's very clear. Go back and read that in Romans 11 to see this is, we're supposed to be making them jealous because God is not done with them. He says that I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. So, verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. For many of those listening online, probably all two of them, this is probably what some people are waiting to hear. What is his take on the rapture? When we study Revelation, that is probably the number one question people have. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, okay, uh, pan-trib. It all pans out in the end. Um, point being is, Revelation, that, that, all of the theology of Revelation has kind of come around that very issue now. I'm going to talk about all of those as we go through. If you recall, when we began this study, I said they're all right. There's aspects of all of that, and that may seem like a cop-out. It won't be. You're going to see, we're just going to let Scripture speak for Scripture. Then I'm going to let you decide based on what you hear. I'll be honest. I have what I lean towards. I'm not going to give you that yet. Some of you know what it is. But I don't know. I'm hoping for some of the others. I just gave it away probably where I lean. But nonetheless, you're going to see. Well, the pre-tribbers, this is one of the verses that is used to really say, look, it says that you will be kept from the hour of trial. That word from, ek, in Greek is to mean to be brought out of. And so they say, see, after we get done with this next church of Laodicea, you will see that the word church is not going to be used again until, I think, chapter 19. And so, in other words, they're going to say that the church is going to be taken out you don't see the church now till Revelation 19. Well, I wouldn't expect to see the church because he's not talking about the churches. He's talking about the churches in chapter 2 and 3. And so I really wouldn't expect it. And even so, if this is a time period of history, all of the people who lived during this time period of history or the literal church of Philadelphia are dead. And therefore, they too 
have indeed been kept out of that trial. So I think it's a weak argument to use this as a support of a pre-trib rapture. But it is used as such. Just that one word, from, ek, out of. The promise that you will be kept out of the trial. But notice it does say that is going to come upon the whole world. That's one of the things that I think when we look at this COVID nonsense that makes this different than any other time period of history is how worldwide this is. And how what's going on is affecting the whole world. To expect his bride not to be beat up before he meets with her, what about his bride, which all of those Christians, like I said before, that were beheaded by ISIS? They're not going to be beat up. They will be restored. They are, there are, uh, why is his name not? For 80 and 6 years, I served the Lord, light the flames. No. It starts with a P, doesn't it? Polycarp. I mean, we could go through so many of his bride already that have been beat up, beheaded, killed. And we're going to talk about the beheadings later. But that just doesn't make any sense to me. There are Christians right now in China, in communist countries who are being arrested and tortured and beaten for the name of Jesus Christ. I get those arguments, but I just don't see that that's good concrete evidence of a pre-trib rapture yet. Uh, we'll talk about other things that are used for pre-trib that maybe are stronger, I think, but I just don't think those are good ones. None of these people have been beat up by God's judgment, and that's the other part that gets confusing for people is, when is man's judgment versus God's judgment begin. And that's where we get into mid-trib ideas as well, because we see that it's not God's judgment. As a matter of fact, what we see is that when God's judgment comes, he seals many of the believers so that it's not on them. So you will not be under God's wrath for sure. But under man's wrath, the devil's wrath, yes. And that's exactly what we see in the Old Testament is that God, one of the reasons he took them through the trials of the wilderness, which again, this whole exodus is a pattern of our life, right? He intentionally let them go through the wilderness to test them. He even gave the Ten Commandments to test them to see if you love me with your whole heart and with your whole soul. And so, yes, we're being tested every day. Even the aspect of suffering, we have to say, when I look at you know, the woman that I saw today who can be in excruciating pain, I think if it was me, I would rather somebody come up and say, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, boom, and put me out of my misery than go through the suffering of you know, cancer. So I think that these human arguments... And just like what you were saying before, we, we do everything we can to be comfortable and stay away from trials. Yet, the Bible says there's a blessing in those trials. Elijah was ready to die. He wanted to die. Lord, take me. Kill me now. And so, this comfortable life was never intended for the Christian to be comfortable. You look at every biblical figure 
Even those who had all the money in the world, their life was filled with trials and tribulations. Look at David. Okay, I mean, and so this prosperity gospel, God wants you to be comfortable. He wants you to be rich. He wants you to have all of these things is not biblical. It doesn't mean you can't have them. It doesn't mean that God won't give them to some people. But that's not the blanket blessing of God, our financial riches and so on. The poor people in the United States of America are rich compared to most of the world. And if you would go back into biblical times, you're, you, you are almost a king. And that always scares me when we look at those verses in Matthew where he talks about it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We're all rich, folks. All of us. I don't care if you're only getting 30000 a year or if you're getting 100000 a year. You're rich. So, something to think about. Verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. That crown, if you jump ahead to chapter 4, verse 4, you will see that. And uh, there it says that these elders are going to lay their crown before the throne, before the feet of Jesus. And so we'll talk about that then, but again, a fulfillment, a prophecy that will be fulfilled later. We see that on all the churches. He who overcomes is going to get this, and so on. Now, before we leave this idea of not suffering and so on, I want to give you a couple of other scripture verses that would kind of go against the idea of not having to go through trials. Look what John 17, 15 said in Jesus' own words. He says, I have given them, the disciples, the, the, your, you know, those who follow him, your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus even prayed, don't take them out of the world. Don't, don't get them, but just protect them. And let me tell you, no matter what happens, Christian persecution, whatever, every Corey Tin Boom or what, they'll say God protected them. God was there even through the trials. Matthew 13, 30, when we look at the parable of the wheats and the tares, the weeds and the tares or the wheat and the tares, he says, no. I'm not going to remove one. I'm not just going to kill all the evil people. And I'm not going to just take the good people and put them over here on an island. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. How long? Until the harvest. When's the harvest? We're going to read about that in Revelation chapter 14. I mean, they're literally harvesting the earth in Revelation chapter 14. I don't know. We'll see. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Who gets gathered first in this parable? The weeds, not the church. It's backwards, according to the typical idea. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Okay? We'll talk about those things later, but just some things to think about at this point. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. 
I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out from heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. There's a lot in this verse, but he who overcomes, he who keeps the word of God, those he's going to make a pillar in the temple of God. Don't forget what the temple is. We are the temple. How can I be a pillar in me? But we're not just the temple. We're just part of it. We're not the entirety of the temple. You are a temple in the temple, a pillar in the temple. Jesus is the temple. We are one in him. Remember, he says, tear this down. And the Jews are like, 80 and 6 years or whatever. It, it took us to build, not 80 and 6 30 and 6 years, or I don't remember what he says, but in Matt John there, he says it took us to build this temple, and you're going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days, but they didn't realize that he was speaking of his body. Jesus was the temple. And so if we are the temple, Jesus is the temple, we're united in him, we're all one, you are being, and again, our brains can't fathom this fully, but you are united in Christ. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city. This is the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Therefore, it says the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb, the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and so on. We, it's more about Jesus being the temple. And so wherever we go, in the city, out of the city, you are the temple of God wherever you go. And so it's not just a millennial thing, it is an eternal thing, if that makes sense. Writing on him the name of God, the new Jerusalem, and a new name of God is what I'm getting out of this. Three different things unless you want to combine the one right on him, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if it gets a new name or what, but it says, and I will write on him my new name. We're going to see later in Revelation when he comes riding on the horse, it says that in chapter 19... On his robe and on his thigh, he has this title name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then before that, in verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire on his head or many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. I've always said, nobody's out there, oh, my Buddha. <laughs> Maybe a bad choice, but I, I, I see where you're going now. Uh, or, oh, my Allah. Right? Nobody, nobody takes the name of Buddha, Allah, the devil, whatever, in vain. It's always, oh my God. And some people think, well, that's, that's not you know, blasphemous or whatever. I can see the argument, but I think it is because you're saying it without meaning it. It is not the holy, reverenced, God of the Bible. 
But, and I think Satan knows that. I think that's why he has tried to defame the name of God. I'm, I won't even say the others, but we, we take the name of Jesus in vain all the time when people get upset or, or whatever. But there is a name, a new name that he is going to have. We see it here in Revelation 19. Again, prophecy being fulfilled that clearly shows us that this church has not fully been filled, kind of like Passover. We think, oh, Passover was done, you know, when Jesus came. No, there's the fourth cup. This church, no, there's still a future fulfillment for this church. And so what we're seeing is that new name has never been blasphemed. The other thing is this new Jerusalem. We'll talk more about it when we get there, but just to kind of let you know, we see that happening here in the end of Revelation in chapter 21 as well, and the dimensions are given. It is a perfect cube. I'm not going to give you all the details right now, but let me tell you, it's huge. You take all of the people in the world, and it wouldn't even touch what it is. Now, again, I don't think there's, I mean, throughout all of history and whatnot, but point being is the tabernacle, the temple, and we're seeing this temple and the new Jerusalem being connected. In the temple, in the tabernacle, the most holy place was a perfect cube. That is a picture of the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven there in the tabernacle. And so we're going to see all kinds of temple references. We see the seven uh, lampstands, all of that. This is temple. So a Jew reading this has all kinds of things going through their mind that might just kind of escape us without having that temple background. And we'll talk about some of those things coming up. One of the things that I find interesting is he shall go out no more. And I got to think about that and I right now in our we are the temple but we've got the flesh and you've got the spirit and we we do kind of come in and out a little bit. We, we have our good days, we have our bad days. We have our days when we're not focused on the Lord, our days when we are focused. And I kind of took that as he shall go out no more, meaning you're never going to have a bad day again. That you will all, you're going to be so united with Christ that that flesh, you will never again walk in the flesh. But it will purely be walking in the Spirit. And I thought that is a promise that is exciting for me. I like that, the temple aspect, because remember you had the outer court, you had the holy place, and the most holy place. And he's talking about this most holy place, this perfect cube, and once you will not go out again. You're not going to have to go to the holy or even to the outer court. All of them was a picture of heaven, but you don't need to go away from the very presence of God, that you will always be in his presence at that Ark of the Covenant. So, kind of a neat picture. Revelation 21, 22, I guess I read that one already, where uh, the temple, and then uh, we also see here in Ephesians 2, verse 20, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so, again, it's showing that this temple that you are a pillar of is really a, this spiritual thing where the Holy Spirit lives in you. And that's that spiritual nature. But because of the flesh, one day that'll be gone and you will never go out anymore.
So, um, verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write. All right, Laodicea, we're now about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia. The last of the churches, the most wealthy of the churches. We are living in a time of the most wealth that we've ever had in the world. And we see that Laodicea was so rich and self-reliant that they also had a earthquake that destroyed the city in 60 AD. Now Rome was going to give them some economic disaster relief money and they refused it because they didn't want to be beholden to the government and they built it back themselves kind of interesting well we're going to see that they're going to talk about this lukewarm water here this city piped in water from six miles away from some hot springs well by the time it got to the city after going for six miles, it was just lukewarm. So it wasn't nice and cold coming out of a nice spring nearby, and it wasn't hot like it was when it came out by the hot springs. So just that'll come in as we read a little bit more here, but just to give you some of that background. Paul mentions this church in Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 through 16 as well, kind of giving greetings uh, from different people. And another interesting aspect is that economically, these guys, they were known for an ISAV that they, I don't know if developed or sold or whatever, just like we had some that were known for their purples and whatnot. This one was known for their ISAV. And this is also something that is going to be brought up to the church. So... Um, the most impressive church probably on the outside, but on the inside, one of the least impressive. So, keep that in mind as you read here uh, what he says to this church. These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Some interesting things here. I'm going to touch on some and come back and touch on some in a moment. But the amen, the final, the final one. It, very appropriate as we're closing out the churches, about to bring in the Lord's return. And he says, this is from, it is finished. This is coming from the one who says enough. The amen. He is faithful he is true. What I've said is going to happen. Uh, I do not lie. You can count on it. All of those kind of things today. In the beginning, well, the faithful and true witness, and I find it interesting that the greatest witness of God being God to me beyond his son is the creation itself. The faithful witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, don't take this wrong, and I'm going to talk about it in a minute. It's not saying that God was created, that Jesus was created either. You could kind of read it that way, the beginning of creation, you know, that he was the first thing that God created. No, that's not what this is saying. But 
what you're going to see is that the attribute given to this church, just like all the other attributes, fit the thing that you know, they're going through. I find it very significant that this church, representing from 1900 to the present, roughly, the quality is truth and creator. Yeah, evolution, that disease has spread, and even in the churches, so many people have mixed evolution and creation, believing in millions of years and so on. And here's the attribute of a creator. You're going to see later in Revelation, I'm not going there now, but you're going to see an angel is going to fly out with the eternal gospel. And you know what the message is? The creator. That Revelation will define, at least in part, the eternal gospel, God being creator. Very timely, appropriate attribute of Christ to fit the time period again. Uh, the NIV calls it the ruler of God's creation. But most of the translations will call it the beginning of the creation of God. What that is saying is he is the producer of it. He is the cause of every creature. He is the beginning of all creation. He's the cause, not the created part. Again, I just can't express, you know, how much that means to me as a, being in a creation ministry and what I've seen evolution do to families and churches and communities in the world, how important this is. Uh, it, it means everything, and I could go off track and talk for hours, but we won't. Um, another thing here is, let's see, let me read verse 15, and I'm going to come back to verse 14. I know your works. Notice again, works kind of important that you are neither cold nor hot I could wish that you were cold or hot so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot I'll vomit you out of my mouth cold water is a good thing water that's hot is a good thing lukewarm not good I mean you don't want your coffee lukewarm you either want it cold or you want it hot your pop you want it cold or you want it cold <laughs> You have to have one or the other. It's just not normal to have it lukewarm. And so some say that either being cold or hot is good. But not being either this middle of the road kind of thing. You might maybe put it this way too. Choose this day whom you're going to follow. You can't ride the middle of the fence. You can't have a foot in the world. Well, I believe in evolution and that God created using evolution so that you have a foot in God's world and in this lie of false education of evolution. That you are need to be choosing one or the other. And I think that it grieves God more for a Christian to be lukewarm than it does to be cold. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 5 that if there is a brother who is lukewarm, you're supposed to expel him because they're not walking. They're going to contaminate the rest. And so I don't think that either cold or hot is good. I think the hot is good and the cold is just 
better than being lukewarm in the sense of judgment. Because God expects the world to behave in ungodly ways. It doesn't surprise him. He's not like, why aren't you, you know, he knows. You don't believe in me. No wonder you are, you know, committing murder. It is very dangerous to have those lukewarm people because sometimes you can't even identify it. You don't know whether they're hot or cold or whatever they are. And it is dangerous. It is a complacent Christianity. It is one that serves both God and mammon. Logan had sent a pod, podcast this week. I don't remember what it was called, who it was, but it goes through all these titles of people in the church today where you've got the chameleon and all of these different things that are going on in churches, the politician ones, ones that will change to you know every person that comes along one that is going to be the politician, not give you the whole truth skirt around the issue. You know, you ask some of these pastors about what, what's your stand on homosexuality. And by the time they're done giving the explanation, you don't know where they stand on homosexuality. They've skirted the issue coming around, maybe used a word here or there, but they've never answered the question, come out and said, it is sin. And so these are the things that are lukewarm, examples of that that go on, that will preach a gospel from the pulpit, but we won't preach the law. We won't convict. We're, we're only going to give you the nice things. Stay away from repentance and, and the bad things. It sounds good. And so this is why many of these pastors that are out there you may listen to them and they sound good and it's, hey, yeah, it sounds like a great pastor, but it's what they're not saying that's the problem. Prime example, Ravi Zacharias, he, this guy was respected by millions. Ray Comfort, long years before it came out that Ravi had owned massage parlors had expressed concern because you know what you never heard come out of Robbie's mouth? Repentance. He never talked about repentance. He never talked about the law. He was an apologist for logic and philosophy, but you never heard him talk about repentance. And now this guy who had millions of followers, he dies and it comes out that he was not a good moral person. I don't know where he was on his faith in Jesus even. Even though he argued for Jesus. I, I don't know. I'm not going to go there. But I can tell you this, that it wasn't what he said that was the problem. It was what he wasn't saying that was the problem. That's a lukewarm Christian right there. One that, verse 15, I know your works. One that isn't concerned about the works, more concerned just about your attitude of the mind, not the heart. Colossians 1 kind of deals a little bit about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation here. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Again, same thing that we talked about before. It's more authority and originator. For by him, 
Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I'll just let that speak for itself. Another thing here, again, this beginning of the creation of God, focusing on it a little bit more. We talked about it, but I just want to show you one little highlight about it. I said I'd come back to verse 14. Here it is. In Genesis 24, we see Abraham has this servant, and he's going to make that servant go get a bride for his son. This is a picture of God, the Holy Spirit. That servant is a picture of the Holy Spirit who is to go out and find a bride for Isaac, or picture of the church. Well, it says, So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, that servant ruled over everything. And it says, please put your hand under my thigh. And he makes him swear this promise. The Jews have an interesting commentary on that. They say, and Abraham said unto his servant, this is Metatron, which is basically God's name that they won't spell out. The servant of God. Yeah, not the transformer. The eldest of his house, for he is, and then the way it's translated here, this Hebrew, is the beginning of the creation of God. This is right out of their common, actually the Mishnah. He is the beginning of the creation of God. This is what they call the Metatron, which is their Messiah. And here it is in Revelation. Who rules over all that he has, for to him the holy blessed God has given the government of all his hosts. So it's just interesting that that's the title that they give this servant, which is a picture of the Messiah. And again, just illustrates that this word simply means the ruler over all that there is. He has that complete authority. And so just to give you a little tidbit more on that. Verse 17 because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. So, in contrast to Smyrna, Smyrna was financially poor. He said, you're poor, but you're rich. Here, you guys are rich, but you don't realize you're actually not just poor, but pitiful, wretched. America, I think we think we're rich, that we think we're even rich spiritually. And I don't think that most of the people realize we are poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Because we have the word of God, but we don't live it out. Salve, like I said, they made salve in this town of Laodicea and here it's brought about he's basically saying you guys are blind you think you've got it all you think you can see clearly but you don't realize that what you really need is the Holy Spirit you need to know truth that'll open your eyes so that the blind will see you don't realize that you're blind spiritually and having that that sanctification notice what's connected to it if you get that gold from God that spiritual understanding, it says then, what do you get? You're going to be rich, truly rich, and white garments. What are white garments? You'll see that in Revelation 19. 
And I don't know if I've got it coming up or not, but it says that the white garments are the righteous acts of the saints. So again, your works and your faith go hand in hand. If you have that refined gold of God, you're going to have good works. That is what comes from faith. If you don't have good works in your life, you're not a Christian. You might go to church, you might pray, you might say all the right words. You're not a good Christian. You're, you're, you're not a Christian without works. Faith without works is dead, James says. We are. That's why China has prayed for years for persecution to come to America because they see the American church is, is they think they're rich, but they're blind, pitiful, poor, and naked. And when trials come, you will know who are the true believers. Look what, look what the last two years has done to expose many in the church. So, keep it moving. i got to start closing up here. I want to show you the Jews have a phrase for this being spiritually strong. I'm not going to show it to you here. But uh, when it says that you guys are rich, they have a word that they say rich in law. If there is somebody that is noble, competent, they call them rich in law, a sheer betorah. If you have somebody that is kind of a scoundrel, they'll call him poor-in-law. And so when it talks about being rich and poor here, I find it interesting that a Jewish understanding, when they see this, they attach Torah to it. You think that you're rich in law, but in fact, you're poor, blind, pitiful, weak, and, and poor in law in the Torah that connects with this works. So um, I think that we today have sunk into a formality of a lukewarm church, uh, that lukewarm frame of spirit, you might say, uh, spiritual sloths. And this is a wake-up call. We, we think we're secure we think we're rich. We think we're rich in law. And yet, the churches are poor in law. We are lawless. And we need the Holy Spirit, that salve, to open our eyes to see this truth. 1 Peter 1.7 These have come so that your faith, these trials, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire... And again, fire is very important here, refined in the fire. Going back to Andrew's thing, when the tide goes out, when the troubles come, those fires of life, refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Verse 17, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Um, the Jews here have adopted a very Greek word in their language and apply it to this law where it says anoint your eyes there and basically say the law is a salve to your eyes. So even in Jewish thinking, when this talks about anointing your eyes, they see it's the Torah that is a salve for the eyes. Psalm 19.8 is significant. I didn't put it up here, but it says, The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, 
giving light to the eyes. So this idea that the Torah is a salve to the eyes is even there in Psalm 19, that the commands of the Lord bring light so that you can see, light to the eyes. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. It isn't so that you can be a good leader in your community. It's to know Jesus. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Very similar language there. Kind of unpacking what it means. Uh, Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Guys, if you're being rebuked, if you're being chastened, if you're going through hard times in life, I can't tell you it's because you're doing something wrong. It isn't that way. But sometimes it is that way. God will. He says, as many as I love, I am going to allow these hardships to come into your life because I'm going to test you. I'm going to refine you by fire. I'm trying to put salve on your eyes. And so, yes, we all go through these trials and tribulations and stressful times But let this be something that makes you say, you know what? I'm going to pass this test. I'm going to trust God. I don't care. I'm giving it over to him. Because he will do this because he loves you. He talks about this in other places in the New Testament when he says that he disciplines those he loves. What kind of father does not discipline his son? A father that doesn't love his son. And so... Rather than being angry at God and wondering why me, maybe we should say thank you, God, that you consider me worthy to have your eyes upon me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're going to see that in Revelation 19. You're going to see that fourth cup of Passover as we talked about here last week. And he with me. So, Hebrews 12 there talks about the discipline of those that he loves. Same consistent message. So, in kind of getting ready to close out here, I want you to notice the progression through the churches as a recap of what we've seen. We had Ephesus. Repent. Do the things that you did at first. You're starting to slide, or else I'm going to come and remove your church. Smyrna. Okay, we see persecution started coming about. And he says, hey, be faithful to the point of death. All right, so we see the apostolic age. Everything's going great. Hey, this is wonderful. Then persecution comes, Acts chapter 8. Pergamum, he says, repent, otherwise I'm going to come soon. And we see that Pergamum was just very uh, lax as well. Things started to fall apart. It began to come dark and stray. Thyatira, only hold on to what you have until I come. So notice this. I'm going to come. Be faithful. I'm going to soon come. We talked about this last week, but just to remind you. Now, until I come, Sardis, I'm going to come like a thief. Philadelphia, I'm coming soon. Laodicea, what we're going to see here, here I am. I stand at the door. Right? Behold, verse 20, I stand at the door. He kept saying he's coming. Now he's standing at the door. 
peek ahead of next week. Chapter 4, verse 1. What's it say? After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open. He's knocked, and now it's going to be opened. There is a clear progression here, and so we're seeing next week the door is going to be open. When that door opens, folks, it's end times. And so we are about to get into the end times part of Revelation. Now learn this, it says in Matthew 24, from the fig tree, as soon as the twigs get tender, its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. This door is talked about as his second coming, not just in Revelation, but here in Matthew 24. And you're going to see that Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 are identical. We'll talk about that when we get there. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Christ is standing at the door, James 5, 9. So this door isn't opened here in James. Revelation 4, 1, it's going to be opened. So we're about to embark on something big. Verse 21, to him who overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to see that throne. You're going to be seated. He's going to, you're going to sit with him, not over him, with him. Revelation 20, I saw thrones and they sat on them. Judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus, to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, who had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned, reigning, having authority and power with Christ for a thousand years. So here's that prophecy, the promise of those who overcome. That's for you. Because you stand firm during this time of complacency and lukewarmness. And there's a promise for you. Okay? Um, when it says that, uh, sit with me just as I sat, Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So that's what he's talking about. Isaiah says this, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. That's Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. We do not want to be those kind of people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. So when he says, as I overcame, we need to be overcomers. And I want you to remember that word, overcomers, because that is going to be important when we get to Revelation chapter 12. These overcomers, that's a special group of people. And he says, just as I overcame, overcame what? Overcame death, overcame the devil, overcame this world, was not sucked into all the temptations of it, the riches, the building of the kingdom here. He overcame. We need to be overcomers. And we will talk about that more later. And so next week we are going to see what is on the other side of this door. The other side of the time period when the Lord is going to begin to come back. And I think that's where it gets to be exciting. Now, 
Closing out, this is the last slide, just as a recap again. We saw, just you can kind of see it yourself, but Ephesus, as I said, loses their first love, then persecution comes, and then Pergamum was this, the very name means objectionable marriage, a mixing of church and state, the rise of Catholicism. Thyatira was the next church, and they began to spread, the tolerate the Dark Ages. We saw all kinds of the... the uh, my goodness, the fighting of the Jerusalem over Jerusalem, the Crusades, um, just awful things done in the name of Yeshua. And then we had Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, the ones that continue on. After that, we saw the dead church, basically a reformation beginning. The church was dead, and it needed to be reformed. After it began to be reformed, then we see years later the, the missionary expansion and the, the outpouring of the Spirit. This time of revival has happened in history. And then we fell asleep again. And that's where we're at here in Laodicea. So that is the recap of what we have in these churches. The first four followed a theme. The next three are continuing or follow another theme. And the last one kind of is on its own in the sense that it has fallen off the edge a little bit. Um, we'll see those, that pattern much more clearly in all the rest of them, but it is here even in the churches. So with that, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for just your word and the depth of it. Thank you that you walk among the lampstands, that you are here and, and that your eyes see everything. You even see our hearts, even when we ourselves sometimes don't even see our faults and, and the things that need to be purified. So, Lord, though it be a scary prayer, we ask that you would refine us, that you would um, search our hearts, test us, and know our anxious thoughts, that we would be able to be refined and have faith, not just of a mustard seed, but even grander that we would know that no matter what comes upon this world, that we have promises to stand on. As I said, reveal in us any of the lukewarm attitudes that we have, and may you just set our lives on fire for you, that we would be hot, that we would have a passion for your love, for your gospel, and for those around us, that we would have a love even for our enemies, that... It would grieve us to the depths of our spirits to see those that are perishing, those that mock you and those that uh, are trying to steal our children and, their, and the souls of our children. That we would not write them off, but that we would pray, that we would seek to, to have opportunities to share the truth with them and that you would bring them to repentance. As Saul was, Lord, he persecuted, killed Christians, and yet you changed his heart. May you do that to our enemies today. In the name of Yeshua, Jesus, we pray, the God who saves, amen.